You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Exile Rat targets Tibet's government in exile. The Speak Up backdoor afflicts many varieties of Linux systems. Facebook bans ethnic militias in Myanmar from its platform. Norway's PST intelligence service says that Huawei constitutes a security risk, and China says that's nonsense. Someone seems to be hacking contact lists belonging to UK members of parliament, and Bangladesh Bank is suing to recover the $81 million missing from its 2016 Swift heist. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, February 5th, 2019. Cisco's Talos Research Group has identified a targeted campaign against supporters of Tibet independence, including elements of the Tibetan government in exile, that installs the Exile Rat remote access Trojan. The vector is a malicious PowerPoint file, and the attack shares command and control infrastructure with the Lucky Cat Android malware earlier used against Tibetan activists. The researchers think espionage and not criminal gain is the goal. Talos doesn't say as much, but the Magic 8-Ball would probably say that signs seem to point to China, where Tibetan independence groups and sympathizers, as well as ethnic Tibetans both home and abroad, have long been of interest to Beijing's intelligence and security services. Researchers at security firm Checkpoint has found a new Linux backdoor, SpeakUp, which can run on several Linux distributions and on the related Mac OS. The Trojan, thought to be possibly the work of a Russian-speaking coder and so far apparently most active in East Asia, is said to evade most current security products. Checkpoint thinks its current activity is a sign of much bigger campaigns to come. Facebook has banned four ethnic armed organizations that operate in Myanmar from using its platform. The militias all form part of the Northern Alliance and are among the armed militias that have long operated in that country. The group's Facebook band include the Arakan Army, the Myanmar National Democratic Alliance Army, the Kachin Independence Army, and the Ta'an National Liberation Army. This is part of Facebook's ongoing efforts to purge its platform of groups that advocate violence, and even more of groups that use Facebook to incite or coordinate violence. It's worth noting that this isn't being done necessarily at the behest of Myanmar's government, even though security forces have recently clashed with some of the militias, notably the Arakan army. 
As TechCrunch notes in its coverage, Facebook has earlier taken action against some government leaders and organs, including the commander-in-chief of the armed forces and the military-owned TV network, Mayawadi. Nor is this simply the restriction of content as hate speech. Facebook has so thoroughly permeated Myanmar's late-adopting online culture that it practically constitutes the Internet for most of the country's users, and its platform has been actively used to incite and coordinate several violent campaigns, most notably those against the Rohingya Muslim minority in the Buddhist-majority nation. The UN believes some 700,000 Rohingya became refugees since August of 2017. The UN also reported that abuse of Facebook played a determining role in inciting the persecution. Cyber espionage from nation-states of industrial environments continues to be a global concern. The folks at Eclectic IQ have been tracking these threats in their new fusion center. Joseph Williamson is a threat intelligence analyst with Eclectic IQ. So specifically with regards to espionage of industrial environments, I think you can break it down into two categories at the minute. Uh, The first category would be espionage for uh, competitive advantage, and the second would be recon for destructive attacks. So uh, an example of espionage for competitive advantage, that's where a nation state uh, might want to take a look at the ways that uh, Western countries run uh, their businesses in the critical infrastructure sectors so that they can employ certain strategies within uh, their own firms within those sectors. One example that we see a lot at the minute is a lot of China-based adversaries have been working in support of the Belt and Road Initiative. So there's been an increase in Chinese espionage of uh, Western and Southeast Asian uh, petrochemical and energy firms in order to uh, bolster their own trade uh, and gather insight into the other countries that they do business with there. Um, An example of the latter, which is a recon for destructive attacks. It's difficult to to gain too much insight into this because once an adversary gets information uh, on one of the environments that they're surveying, you don't know exactly what they do with it. But to give you an example, uh, there's a Russian-based actor called Dragonfly who has been uh, lurking in a number of Western energy firms for the last few years exfiltrating sensitive data on those organizations' SCADA systems. And for example, just to go down right to the detail, uh, exfiltrating stuff like screenshots of uh, wiring diagrams and stuff like that. Um, What they do with that information uh, is never going to be 100% clear to um, us on the defensive side. Um, But the idea is that they could then use that for subsequent destructive attacks. Can you give us an idea? I mean, how does the average person dial in the appropriate level of concern when it comes to these things? Uh, That's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. In general, when it comes to uh, reporting in mainstream media, um, we tend to take it way too far. The average person is not at risk. You know, it's very unlikely that you're going to wake up and see the headline uh, that uh, a cyber attack on a nuclear power plant is causing immediate danger to a populace. Um, It's not likely that you're going to wake up and find that you have no electricity, although that has happened before. But um, it's unlikely. This doesn't happen very often, um, and it happens to very specific targeted regions. Um, So definitely a dose of realism is needed when uh, you look at the headlines in mainstream media and taking a bit more time to understand the facts behind um, certain situations. These types of attacks are very unlikely to affect your average citizen. 
And so looking forward uh, into the coming year, what do you expect we'll see? Do you think we're going to see an uptick in these sorts of things? Will it run at the same pace that we've experienced in the past few years? Where do you think we'll land? It's another good question. Um, so we uh, we closed out the year with a, a pretty big destructive attack. Supposedly an Iranian-based uh, actor uh, used a Shamoon wiper to target an Italian petrochemical company as well as uh, a few similar organizations in other countries. That certainly suggests that things are not calming down. This is re-emergence of activity that we saw in 2012 and then again in 2017. So that certainly suggests that destructive attacks might continue at the same pace. In terms of espionage, yeah, I would say that's going to continue at the same pace. Um, there's, again, like I said, a lot of China-based adversaries who work in support of the, uh, the nation-state's Belt and Road Initiative. You can almost predict when certain attacks are going to occur based on when uh, neighboring countries have their elections. Um, there's always an uptick in uh, targeting by Chinese actors when uh, a country like Cambodia or Vietnam has a presidential election or something along those lines. That's Joseph Williamson from Eclectic IQ. Norway's PST intelligence service has added Huawei to the list of threats to Norway. Benedicta Bjornland, who runs the domestic intelligence unit, put it this way, quote, An actor like Huawei could be subject to influence from its home country as long as China has an intelligence law that requires private individuals entities and companies to cooperate with China, end quote. The Chinese embassy in Oslo said, It's very ridiculous for the intelligence service of a country to make security assessment and attack China with pure hypothetical language. And it added that China poses no threat to Norway's security. The Norwegian decision comes in advance of the widely awaited report in the UK from the GCHQ unit charged with monitoring Huawei security. That report is expected to be a doozy. BuzzFeed reports that some members of Parliament in the UK have been subjected to cyber attacks. Investigation is underway, but the hackers seem to have been interested in getting phone numbers and contact lists. Bangladesh Bank is suing Manila-based Rizal Commercial Banking Corporation, RCBC, and others for the $81 million lost to hackers in a 2016 caper that abused the SWIFT transfer system. In an unusual move, the New York Fed is working with Bangladesh Bank to assist with the clawback. Consensus holds North Korea responsible for the theft, as does the FBI. The theft involved transferring funds from Bangladesh Bank's accounts with the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. $101 million were siphoned away to front accounts in Sri Lanka and the Philippines before bankers involved in the transfer realized something was amiss. It's worth noting that alert proofreaders at Deutsche Bank noticed misspellings and wayward grammar in the transfer requests, and they're the ones who sounded the warning. As Americans, we note with shame that the Germans were better proofreaders than our own boys and girls in New York apparently were. Of the $101 million stolen from Bangladesh Bank, $20 million of it went to front accounts in Sri Lanka, and essentially all of that was recovered. Most of the $81 million that went to the Philippines is still missing, and that's what Bangladesh Bank hopes to recover. The Washington Post points out that recovery will be difficult. Bangladesh Bank alleges that RCBC personnel helped the North Korean hackers transfer the money to RCBC accounts at the New York Fed and then to the Philippines, where ever since it's been gone, baby, gone. RCBC has said in response that this is all PR and misdirection on Bangladesh Bank's part, 
to cover up its own negligence in permitting the transfers in the first place. They'll see one another in court, probably. Why not, you may ask, just sue Pyongyang, since, after all, they're the goons behind this caper? A good question, but remember a couple of things about North Korea. First, it's not exactly a country with deep pockets. That's why its government hackers are so busy with financial crime. And second, it's really not a government that has a deep respect for international law, still less for whatever decisions might be issued by some Yankee court. So what are you going to do? Send a repo man after a great successor and dear comrade Kim Jong-un's Mercedes limo? Not likely. In the first place, it would be hard to get through the bouncers guarding it. In the second place, you'd have to beat the Sinanju Highway Patrol to the Yalu Bridges, since you probably wouldn't want to try the minefields around the DMZ, which would be like trying to drive north on the 101 during a Los Angeles rush hour. And finally, the value of the car probably wouldn't cover the full $81 million, even if it does contain that fully functional onboard toilet, rumored to have been installed aftermarket. So while the Mercedes is what anyone would call nicely loaded, Bangladesh Bank will have to get whole somewhere else. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, and he is my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Joe, it's great to have you back. Hi, Dave. I try to make a point to learn something new every day. Uh, good. I try to do the same thing. <laughs> and, uh, recently, something came by that was not necessarily new, but it was new to me. Okay. And uh, so much so that I wanted to check in with you about it because it really... It exceeded some of my technical knowledge, and I thought maybe you could help out here. It turns out that when you're logging into Facebook on a mobile device, Uh Facebook is not exactly 100% precise about 
checking your password. Hmm. What's going on here? That sounds scary, doesn't it? <laughs> well, it didn't. It, it was. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes, it was. But I figure there must be more to the story. So okay, what's so, going on here? Uh, there's a um, there's this is from a post on Y Combinator. Yeah. And there is a user who, who noticed that he entered passwords differently and, and Facebook still accepted the password. So he wrote Facebook and said, what's up with this? Yeah. And Facebook told him from a mobile device, they will accept four forms of the user's password. They will accept the original password. Right. They will accept the password with the case switched. So in other words, if, as if you have um, the cap locks on. And the third way is if the, if the initial character of the, uh, of the password is a letter, they'll accept it if it is the original password is in, in lowercase, but it's in uppercase. Right? Oh, because mobile devices tend to automatically uppercase. Correct. That happens to be words. frequently on my mobile device. Okay. Uh, although nowadays in passwords, it, it doesn't seem to be an issue. Uh, and finally, they will accept your password if it has an, an additional character at the beginning or an additional character at the end. Hmm. Okay. So there's two things going on here. One is if I had to speculate on how this is being done, I don't know, but I, if I had to speculate, then I would say that they are storing three hashes of your password. When, yeah. you, when you enter or change your password to a new password, right? So the first one is the original password. Then they run a text conversion on the password to change the case of the first letter, and they hash that. And then they run a text conversion on the password again to invert the case, and then they hash that, and they store those three passwords. Then when you enter your password, this is how I would develop it if I was a developer. They're going to hash the password you entered, uh, the password you entered minus one character at the end and the password you entered minus one character at the beginning. That's going to give them three hashes, three candidate hashes. And if any of those three candidate hashes match the hashes that they have, one of the hashes that they have stored, then they authenticate you. Huh. Now, I, you know, uh, my first inclination here is to think, well, huh, what? Right. <laughs> password is not a password. Uh, it just needs to be close. But... I went a little, did a little digging on this, and yep. saw some people talking about it and saying, "Well, no, because because you're coming from a mobile device, that's right. something you have, mm -hmm. and uh, this is probably okay. It's it's worth it's worth the slightly lower amount of security for the convenience to the user." Yeah, the 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 lowering of the, of the amount of security is really not that big of a deal. You're changing the case of one letter, you're tripling the key space of available passwords, but you're going from one to three. Hmm. And then the, the truncating of the password really doesn't have any effect on your security level because if if I take a let's say I take a ten character password and then Facebook hashes two nine character passwords, that doesn't really matter, right? Yeah, I can't think of how that does matter. I might okay. be wrong, but I don't think it matters. But well, Facebook has decided it doesn't matter enough, right? And that and that's really the key here. <laughs> right, is it doesn't right. matter enough. So once again, if if you're using a twenty character password, that's all uppercase, lowercase, special characters, numbers, you're going to be fine. This password policy is going to have a minimal impact on your risk. I see. So it might actually make it easier for you to log in when you're coming in on a mobile device. Right, right. And I guess Facebook has uh, made the decision uh, that uh, it's worth it to not... Uh, it's worth it to make it easier to the, for the user to log in on a mobile device right. rather than the whatever slight amount of uh, insecurity it may add yep. uh, is, in, is insignificant but worth it. Uh, you know, if if this were my choice, I wouldn't do it. If yeah. I was running the website, I wouldn't do this. But Facebook has, has opted to do it. I don't have that big of a problem with it. Yeah. All right. Well, it's interesting. Like I said, you learn something new every day.
Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.